Hello and welcome to Theology and Coffee, the podcast that gives you bite-sized theology for life on the go. From creeds, catechisms, church fathers to biblical theology, this podcast is the one-stop shop to get you more literate when it comes to understanding God, the meaning of life and the universe. Your hosts will sometimes be me, Chris Wickland, and sometimes my wife, Tracy Wickland. So get the kettle on, pour your favourite brew, get your Bible and your notebook out, and let's do Theology and Coffee. Today we start to look at how God is known. It's called epistemology. It's about the method of the knowledge, how we know God. I asked Siri on my iPhone if man could know God, and she came up a blank. She didn't understand the question. I tried again, but nope. Not only did she not have the answer, she couldn't even comprehend the question. And this is because knowing God is inextricably linked to relationship with him. Like the old song says, to know you is to love you. And as we discover the knowledge of God, the more we learn about him, the more we discover who he is, the more we are drawn to experience a deeper relationship with him. So now, let's have a look at some of the scriptures that answer the question that Siri couldn't help me with. Can man know God? Should man know God? Does God even want man to know him? So where do we start? Let's have a look at Hosea 6.6. It says that God requires us to have a knowledge of him, more than he requires burnt offerings from us. I guess, again, that comes back to the point, to know him is to love him. When we know him, our obedience comes not through a tick box following of the rules and a quick heartless sorry when we don't, but we obey out of love for him and a deepening knowledge of him. After all, this is the first and greatest commandment to love God. Our obedience comes from our relationship of knowing him and loving him. He requires this more than burnt offerings. God himself actively desires that we know him. We'll come back to that. So should we know God? Jeremiah 9, 23 says that our boast should be that we know God. Can we know God? John 17, 3 says that eternal life is knowing God. And how can we know God? 2 Peter three eighteen tells us to grow in grace and in the knowledge of the Lord. The Bible exhorts us to know God. But then yet again in other places, it talks about the seemingly unknowable. It mentions the mystery of Christ, the mystery of the church, the mystery of the gospel and the mystery of godliness. So what is it? Is God knowable or is he a mystery? Well, the answer is yes to both. The good news comes for us in Matthew when Jesus says it has been given to us to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. All those mysteries of God are available for the uncovering by his people, through his grace. This is one of the many reasons why the new covenant is so exciting. God has to hide his holy face from our sin. But Jeremiah 31, when promising the new covenant, tells us that he will take away our sins and that we will then be able to personally know him, each man for himself. It's an offer that is exclusive to new covenant Christianity, to know God. He be... Hebrews 3 tells us as Christians, we become partakers of grace, partakers of the divine nature. Being partakers is mentioned all over the New Testament. It says we are partakers of Christ, partakers of a heavenly calling, partakers of the Holy Spirit, partakers of his holiness and partakers of his glory. 
That Greek word for partakers means to share and partner in something that brings about change. We can share and partner in Christ. We can really, really know him, partake in him, and it brings about a change in us. To know him is to love him, is to serve him, is to obey him. As Hosea says, it's much, much better than burnt offerings. So the word revelation means an uncovering. It obviously means a revealing, a revelation. Karl Barth says that it is God himself that bridges the gap between the mystery and the knowing. God alone reveals himself to us by grace. By God alone can God be known. The knowledge of God cannot take place in a vacuum. It is strictly linked in its fullness to a Christian experience of relationship with God through Christ. And it's not like any other relationship. As humans, we just stumble around, we partner others, we partner ourselves. But God is fully self-aware and he also fully knows us. As Psalm 139 says, You have searched me, O God, and you know me. The revealing of himself comes from one who is all-powerful, he's all-glorious, he's all-knowing and he's immortal. There's a measure of security and joy in just knowing that alone. So how? How does God reveal himself to man? Well, our time constraints today will probably only allow us to look at one aspect of that and that is general revelation. John 3.16 tells us that God so loved the world. And this is where general revelation kicks in. God reveals himself in general terms to all of humanity because of his love for humanity. There are three main ways that God does this general revelation. Through creation, through conscience and through history. Psalm 19 says that the heavens declare the glory of the Lord and the firmament shows forth his handiwork. Day unto day they utter speech. And night unto night they utter knowledge. There is no human anywhere without excuse of the knowledge of God. Genesis 1.26 says that we are made in God's image. As we interact and we observe and we carry out relationships with one another, the knowledge of God is revealed to us as we live among other image bearers. And at very base, at very bottom, just looking in the mirror, at a human made in God's image, speaks to us of our creator God, of intelligent design. In the beginning, God. He is the master craftsman. All of creation shows us that God exists. It shows us his glory. It shows us his power. It shows us his extravagance. Romans 1 tells us that he is the immortal God and he is even greater than that which he has created. How amazing is that? Creation in all its beauty and all its majesty and all its diversity shows us that God is alive and God is active. It shows us that he is a God of order. It shows us that he is a God who is loving and kind. Matthew 5.44 says that God causes the sun to rise on the good and the evil. It shows us he is merciful. It shows us he is slow to anger. Acts 14.17 says that God gives us food and rain and that this is a testimony to himself. As we bring forth food from the ground, God has allowed it to grow for us and this shouts out a testimony to him. 
and our consciences bear witness. Our conscience shows us that we are image bearers. We think, we feel, we imagine, we reason. Romans 2 says that God has given us that built-in moral compass that allows us to know. It reveals to us a moral God. All of humanity carries one, albeit limited, albeit seared, but they have a fundamental knowledge of a holy God within the workings of their conscience. And Romans 2 says that this leaves us without excuse. And finally, history. History reveals God to us over and over again in the creation account, in God's dealing with Israel, in the rise and fall of nations and empires. The providence of God, his hand in history, is a manifestation of divine care and direction and reveals God to us, even in our smaller histories, in our testimonies, in, a, in our everyday provision. The knowledge of God is revealed to us. God is good. God so loved the world that he will not leave us without testimony to himself, without a revealing and a general knowledge of his glory and his goodness. As we continue next time, we will see that his specific revelation to his people takes us even into a deeper knowledge of him and an understanding of just how wide, just how long, just how high and just how deep our absolutely amazing God is. As Augustine of Hippo says, You, O Lord, called and cried out loud, and you shattered our deafness. And now it's time for Weird Facts in Church History! In the very early days of Christianity, a local community would recognise someone as a saint after his death, holding him up as a person who lived an exemplary and heroic life for Jesus. Beginning around 1000 AD, however, the church desired greater uniformity and scrutiny, so various bishops began to regularise this process of becoming a saint. To better authenticate the canonization of people who would become saints, the church even devised a, a new position known as the devil's advocate, which was brought in in 1450. And this person's job was just literally their only job, their only day job was to cast doubt on the virtues and miracles reported when a holy man or woman was brought to the bishops to be recognized as a saint. And this position of devil's advocate still exists today. Well, that's all we got time for. If you've got any comments or questions, please email us admin at lwcn.uk. And until next time, have a great day. <laughs>